You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Feel like who art ed? Try to slice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, 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 it works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at Renee Magritte. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder, be sure you check the links in the show notes. The network is doing a survey right now, and if you take the time to fill it out and give us a little bit of feedback, you can be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card as our way of saying thank you. So please make sure you click on the link in the show notes or go to www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. Also, a reminder, we're just one week out from the start of the annual Arts Madness Tournament. I've been releasing daily mini episodes as a quick refresher on all 64 diverse artists in this year's tournament. And voting for round one is going to start on February 27th. So make sure you check the links in the show notes, look at the brackets, and fill out the prediction form. Tell me which of those 64 artists do you think is going to win the tournament this year. At the end of the tournament, I'm going to randomly select a couple of people who correctly predict the winner and send them some Amazon gift cards. I'm using all the ad money I get for the month of February to send out gift cards, so remember, the more you listen, the more I can give away this spring. And now, on to the actual topic for today's episode, Renee Magritte. Magritte was born in Belgium, November 21st, 1898. His father was moderately successful in manufacturing. At some points, the family lived in relative comfort, but they also had some leaner times, and they moved around a little bit. Before he developed his sort of surrealist style that he became really well known for, he was influenced by the Impressionists as a teenager. In 1916, he left home and studied at the Académie Royale des Beaux-Arts in Brussels. At this time, 1916, the big movements going on were like Cubism, Futurism, and he was dabbling in those styles. He spent some time doing freelance designing of like ad posters. He worked for a little bit in a wallpaper factory. Although he was making other stuff to pay the bills, he was still painting throughout this time. In the 1920s, the Surrealist movement was taking root, and he was captivated by it. This moved his work in a whole new direction. He started making these 
witty sort of paintings he became famous for. He was starting to gain some traction in the surrealist circle, but in Belgium, his work wasn't all that well-received. He had a one-man show in 1927, but it didn't go over well. Shortly after, he moved to France. While he's in France, he lives in the suburbs of Paris, and he starts hanging out with essentially like all the cool kids of the Surrealist movement. He's hanging out with Salvador Dali, Max Ernst, Juan Miro. It was around this time that he made one of his most famous works, The False Mirror, first painted in 1928. He made a couple of versions of it. And I talked about that in greater detail in the full episode I recorded with my friend Emily Fiedler. Um, I'll link that in the show notes. For this mini-episode, I want to talk a little bit about Son of Man. Harry Torxiner, not sure if I got the pronunciation right on that, but he was Magritte's good friend. He was an advisor and a patron. He commissioned René Magritte to paint a self-portrait. The thing is, Magritte found it kind of hard to paint his own portrait. It's not that Magritte couldn't paint a face. It's that he just had a little trouble painting his own face. He described it as a problem of conscience. Ultimately, he came up with probably one of the greatest dodges for an artist struggling in their work. He painted a self-portrait with an apple in front of his face. The composition is as awkward as I imagine Magritte felt trying to paint his own portrait for someone else. I mean, just think about how weird it would be to give someone else a picture you painted of yourself. But in the Son of Man painting, which not everybody realizes, there's actually more than one. There is another version that's a little bit more in the impressionistic style with streaks of colors. And he made a similar composition with the man in the bowler hat and a suit and everything, but instead of an apple in front of the face, there's a bird flying in front of his face. Still, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about the famous son of man here. The man appears overdressed and out of context within the setting. I mean, he's standing in front of what looks like almost a cinder block or a rock wall, and there's sort of a seascape on the other side of that wall. We see the water sort of bleeding into a sky that's a little bit hazy. The man's dressed formally. It's a dark suit, bowler hat. I don't know why. Magritte seemed to like the bowler hats. They come up in several of his works. The pose is stiff and rigid. He seems uncomfortable, possibly because if you look really closely at his left elbow, viewer's right side, it appears to be bent backwards. If I were looking only at the bottom right of this painting, I might think the man was facing the water, but as I look up, I can see he's looking back at me, or at least he's trying to. He has an apple hovering in front of his face, which if I'm being honest, kind of irritates me. I want to see his full face, but I suppose it would probably be even more irritating to the man who sees nothing but an apple skin hovering in front of his face all the time. Ultimately, that discomfort is kind of the point. Magritte said, At least it hides the face partly. 
Well, so you have the apparent face, the apple hiding the visible but hidden, the face of the person. It's something that happens constantly. Everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what's hidden by what we see. There's an interest in that which is hidden and which the visible does not show us. This interest can take the form of a quite intense feeling, a sort of conflict, one might say, between the visible that is hidden and the visible that is present. And what he means by that is we see something in front of our face and at the same time we know that thing we're seeing is blocking our view of something else we could be seeing. That's the kind of twisted, sort of circular logic that Rene Magritte liked to expose and pull apart and confront in his artwork. I also think there's something interesting, some would say telling, about the use of the apple to hide the face, along with his describing his struggle as, quote, a matter of conscience. There are those who talk about religious connections as the title is Son of Man. And that's also the way that Christians refer to Jesus. Further, while not directly spoken of in the Bible, the apple is often depicted as the forbidden fruit in visual representations of the Genesis story. Ultimately, I think the reason this piece has become so popular is because it's clear and concrete enough for people to easily understand what is literally in front of their eyes, But the free associations and symbols that are so broad and vague can't be pinned down, they lend it to lots of different interpretations. It can be stretched to whatever meaning the viewer wants to see in it, like a Rorschach test. The ink blots and other images that are vague reveal more about the viewer through their connections and interpretations. Perhaps that's why Son of Man is among the most famous images of the Surrealist movement. It's one of the few artworks that transcends the museums and has become part of pop culture. Actually, technically, it isn't even in the museums. Son of Man is privately owned, rarely seen on public display. But it's been referenced in books and movies like Stranger Than Fiction, The Thomas Crown Affair. TV shows like The Simpsons have done renditions of it. We've even seen references in music videos by the likes of Michael Jackson. But also, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're well aware, it was the inspiration for the greatest bit of pop culture in the history of the world. My podcast cover art. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.